Uh, Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And as you do that, allow me to start with a true confession today. And it's this. I like to be efficient with my time. Maybe I should say it this way. I love to be efficient with my time. It's a habit of mine that can be really good. And so I try to make the most of every week. I try to make the most of every day. I try to make the most of every hour. I try to make the most of every minute. I use my calendar and sync up my iPhone with Outlook, and I try to organize my time until it's very thorough and thought through, and I try to squeeze in as many things as I possibly can. And besides the calendar tool, I also love to make lists. And so inside of my little folder here, I always have my handy-dandy yellow legal pad with my to-do list on it. And I love my to-do list because I like to also check things off of my to-do list when they're complete. That's just how I roll. That's just what I do. It might be one of my favorite things to do, to check things off of my to-do list. In fact, what I will do sometimes is if I accomplish a task that is not on the to-do list, I'll go ahead and just take the time to write it on the to-do list after the to-do list item has already been completed, but I will write it anyway just for the satisfaction of checking it off my list. Is anybody with me out there? I know. I am insane. I am crazy. It's madness. Is there any meaning in uh, the madness? I know I'm a little OCD. I need some help. I, maybe you're like me. You need some help too. I think one of the reasons why I have such a compulsion around organizing my calendar and keeping my to-do list up to date is because it's the only way I can adequately and appropriately deal with the issue of time. And I think that's an issue that all of us can relate to. It feels like time is a resource of great scarcity in my life. But it's a resource that all of us have an equal amount of, right? The President of the United States has the same 24 hours today that you and I have today. And that goes for all of us. And here's the tension, I think. We desperately want to be in control of time But the hard truth is we actually aren't in control of time. Not really. And so time is one of the issues that the teacher, the Kohelet, the thinker in the book of Ecclesiastes looks to to teach us something about meaning in the madness. Up until now, we've been talking about space. And he said there's this space under the sun down here without any knowledge of anything above the sun and under the sun is a meaningless space. But now he switches the subject from space to now talking about time and that's what the passage is about today in Ecclesiastes 3. And so we've just simply entitled the message Meaning and Time. And you'll notice that there's two separate equal parts to this passage. Uh, The first Nine verses are about looking at time from under the sun, and then the the following six verses, verses 10 through 15, are about looking at time from above the sun. And so what we want to do is read through the passage together, and I will read it for you, and then we will go back and pick up the details. So would you, if you're able, stand in honor of God's inspired word as we take a look at our text today. Hear the word of the Lord. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, 
a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. Let's pray. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths, and so we pray that you would open up our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word today. Spirit of the living God, give us eyes to see and faith to obey your word with our whole hearts. Help me, your servant, to preach your word with clarity, wisdom, passion, and freedom. And as the seed of the word is planted and watered, we look to you to have this seed bear fruit in its time. And when it does, we will be careful to give you all of the glory and honor for making all things beautiful in its time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If I could just take a moment and review with you where we have been up until now. Pastor Bob has done a fantastic job on the first couple weeks of this series. I have really appreciated you, brother, so thank you for that. We've been asking and answer this, answering this one question, can man find meaning in life under the sun without God? And Solomon has said that the answer to that question is no. Instead, he has said it is all meaningless. And the word for meaningless that he's been using is that Hebrew word Hebel or Hevel. It's used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's translated in the Bible in a variety of different ways, sometimes figuratively, sometimes literally, as vapor, mist, vanity, as that which is fleeting, that which is short, that which is transient, that which just comes and goes. Pastor Bob gave us this translation that I think is pretty helpful. Perhaps mere breath is a great way to translate that term. Something that's here and then it's gone. It's hevel. And this concept affects every sphere of our lives. You might gain some fleeting enjoyment, but there is nothing lasting, nothing you can hold on to, no enduring profit or significance, no quenching of the thirst. Instead, this world under the sun is nauseatingly redundant and circular and sometimes chaotic. This book is about living in the world down here, in this world, the world that does not behave, the world under the sun, a world that is enigmatic and a world that at times does not make sense. 
So again, can man find meaning in this life under the sun apart from God? Solomon the Kohelet says, no, it's impossible without an infinite reference point. And so everything is meaningless without God. That was week one. This book is like an evangelistic tract to all of the world about the futility of life lived without God. And then in week two, Pastor Bob talked about this happiness quest that we all tend to go on. Not a meaning quest, but a happiness quest. If you want to know whether or not the right circumstances can make you really happy, we could all save ourselves a lot of time, resources, and heartache, frankly, just by listening to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon tells us what he tried to do, right? Verse 1, he says, I decided to enjoy myself and find out what happiness is. And then Solomon lists everything that he tried. He says, I tried accumulating things, building stuff, experiencing pleasure, achieving success. He says, I had it all. I had money. I had power. I had servants galore. I had huge success in my career. I was a king over this mighty empire. But amazingly, he says, none of that produced any lasting happiness. It was all meaningless. They were all dead ends. And chapter 2, verse 17 says this, all of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And so, is there anyone up there? Is there anyone who can help us? Francis Schaeffer says, God put Solomon in a philosophical time machine and projected him into the future to try everything and come back and say, there's nothing out there. There's nothing in knowledge. There's nothing in pleasure. There's nothing in materialism that will provide any lasting meaning. It's almost like if somebody took an expedition and went over to Mars to look for life over there, and then they go all the way over there and come all the way back here and say, no, there's nothing out there. Just like that, Solomon goes on an expedition and says, I've tried all this stuff. I've went over there. There's no life out there. There's no lasting meaning out there without God. So is there anyone above the sun? Is there any hope for us? Francis Schaeffer says, yes, he's the God who is there. He is there and he's not silent. In fact, this is what we learn at the end of chapter 2, that we need a revelation from God. Chapter 2, verse 26 says this, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge. And this is not a wisdom and knowledge that we get manufacturing this inside of ourselves or through study. This is a wisdom that is bestowed upon us. This is a message from above the sun. This is a revelation from God. In other words, we need a Bible. We need a message from above to have meaning. There are no ultimate answers in this world under the sun without this revelation. So can man find meaning apart from God? The answer is no. Now, that could be the end of the book of Ecclesiastes right there at the end of chapter 2. He's made his point, and it's a good point, and I think it's a solid argument. But there is more to this book, and there are other problems that he's going to address. In fact, the only problem greater than the problem of living life without God is going to be the problem of living life with God. And this is where he starts in chapter 3. He says this, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. Notice that word, everything. It means everything. There is an appointed time for everything. This is the background behind that verse in the book of Hebrews that says it's been appointed for man once to die and then comes the judgment. This is why King David says like in Psalm 139, all of my days are ordered, were written in your book, they're ordered in advance, the ones that you ordained for me. This is why Acts 13 says that David, when he served the purpose of God in his generation, then he fell asleep because there is an appointed time for everything, including even the day of our 
death. But it's not just that. He means beyond that. It's not just everything, including death. He means every single event, every single type of action are included here in the word everything. And here he lists a broad list of examples in verses two through eight. Let me remind you of what he said. Now, verses two through eight are set apart as a poem. This is a poem. It seems obvious to mention that, but I think it's important for you to recognize that this is a poem, and it's a poem about time. The word time is repeated in every single verse. For you technical people, there's a rhythm to this, there's a symmetry to this, and that's also obvious. It has a parallel structure, it has chiasms and polarities and opposites, it's made up of 28 different Topics, 14 binary pairs or groupings, which is two times seven, seven being the number of perfection and completion in the Bible, giving the impression that this poem has a comprehensiveness to it. It covers everything about time, and it reads with a cadence, like tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. In fact, let's do that together. Ready? Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Time is just ticking away. And, and right now, we are a few seconds closer to the end than we were a few seconds ago, and it just keeps on moving. Time keeps on ticking away. Now, the word for time here is the Hebrew word et, E-T, and it simply can mean time in a temporal sense, like time on a time continuum, but it can also mean time in a substantive sense, meaning it's a, a time for a certain event or a certain set of circumstances, And that's the way he's using it here, time in a substantive sense. Think about using the word time like it's time to get married. It is time to wake up. You have teenagers? It's time to wake up, okay? It's time to invest your money. It's time for war. It's time for the baby to come. It's January in New Jersey. It's time to go skiing. There's a time. There's a season about things in life. That's the sense in which the author is using the word time here in a substantive sense. Just think about bananas. I love bananas. There's, there's a time to eat bananas. They have outward indicators of inward contents, right? Green, too early. Black, too late. Yellow, just right. There's a ripeness about it. That's substantive time. It's time to eat a banana. That's the kind of way he's using the word time here in this poem. Uh, Look at the details of the poem. Right off the bat, you see in verse 2, he says, there's two decisions that you have no control over, the day of your birth and the day of your death. There's a time set apart for each of those things. Then he says, there's a time to plant. That's the springtime. Then there's a time to uproot. That's the harvest time. Verse 3 says, there's a time to tear down. There's a time to build up. Like in the Bible, God calls his people to tear down the idols. And then sometimes in the Bible, uh, God calls his people to build up the temple. In verse 4, it says, there's a time to mourn. Right? Even Jesus at the, at the grave of his friend Lazarus took time to weep there because there's a time for mourning. And then there's a time to dance. You'll recall David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant in the book of 2 Samuel, right? Verse 5, there's a time to embrace like the day of your wedding. And then there's a time to refrain from embracing like when there's a pandemic and you've got to keep six feet apart. There's a, verse 6 says there's a time to lose. For you Giants fans, you know exactly what, what I'm talking about here. There's a time to lose in life, right? So you got to know when to hold them. you got to know when to fold them. There's a time to rebuild the team, right? There's a time to even lose. Verse 7, there's a time for keeping silent. There's a time to, you know, plead the fifth. Verse 8 says there's a time for war. There's a time for the allies to invade Normandy. And then there's a time for peace. There's a time to resolve that conflict. There's a time for everything and every season. 
Here's a picture of my favorite tree in my yard. I took it back during the summer when it was beautiful and full of leaves. And then the other day for this sermon, I said, let me get a picture of this ugly tree right now in the middle of winter uh, as it is in this particular season. It's the same exact tree right by my driveway there, just two different seasons. This is what Solomon is observing here about all of life. There's seasons for everything. This is life in a way under the sun, Life under the sun has these times to it. It has these seasons to it. There's these rhythms to it. And sometimes it feels like futility. I just raked all those leaves. Now they're back. i got to rake them again next fall, right? Sometimes these rhythms, they feel like we're not really getting anywhere. It feels like a rocking chair. We're just moving, but we're not really making any progress. It feels like nothing lasts in this life. It feels kind of circular. Life can feel like that. Life can feel like a never-ending list of chores, like the dishes. The dishes are never done. There's always more dishes in the sink, like the garbage. It's time to take the trash out to the street. It's time to pull the trash can back up from the street. Every Wednesday, here we go, trash day again, like mowing the lawn. It just won't stay mode, right? Grocery shopping. It's time to get some more groceries in the fridge or any chore for you with little ones, changing diapers. It's just, it's just endless. The times continue to come. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. Perhaps this is the most famous poem in the Bible. I mean, every baby boomer remembers that today's passage was completely plagiarized by the birds in 1965 who had a hit song, Turn, Turn, Turn. Coincidentally, the lead singer uh, actually just passed away this past week, just like the psalm says uh, that we all have uh, an appointed time. Now, if you remember that song from the birds back in the 60s, if you remember what the tune sounds like, it's a really easy melody. It's a really gracious, gracious kind of song. It's a slow melody. There's a real positive vibe to it. I'm not really sure that that's the tone that the Kohelet intended to convey here when he originally wrote the poem of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This poem is supposed to fit with the frustration that's being expressed in the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes. Author Michael Kelly said it might be better to consider a a few fresh examples to help us understand the spirit of this poem a little bit more accurately. And so maybe you can hear these words in a fresh way. There's a time for a healthy baby to be born, and there's a time for a miscarriage. There's a time to play with your kids, and then there's a time where your kids are too cool to be seen with you in public. There's a time when your kids are in diapers, and then there's a time when you're not really sure you can afford to feed your family. There's a time when you're earning a really good salary, and then there's a time where you wonder if you've really saved enough for retirement. There's a time for chemotherapy, and then there's a time for remission. There's a time for diplomacy in the world, and then there's a time for unavoidable conflict. And when you read it like that, you can feel a little bit more freshly what the teacher is trying to communicate. And sometimes life with these seasons, these polarities, these contradictions seem frustrating to us while we live under the sun, inside of time. And it seems like an endless cycle of monotony and futility. That's life under the sun. This is why he comes to this rather despairing conclusion in verses 9 and 10. He says, what, what do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. And here Solomon calls life a burden, or your translation might say the task, 
I've seen the task God has given to men. There's pain. There's toil in this world. This poem is about a post-Genesis 3 world. This poem is about the world we have, not the world we're going to have, not the world we did have at one time. This is the world that we have right now. In other words, there are elements of this poem which would not have existed if we did not live in a post-Genesis 3 world. Without the fall of humanity, there would be no time to kill. There would be no time to mourn. There would be no time to hate. There would not be a time for war. Those realities only exist after the sin of humanity has occurred. And so this is a poem about what John Milton would call paradise lost. This is a poem about what life is like now in a fallen world. This is a poem about life under the sun. Yeah, there's good times under the sun. But there's also times of horrible suffering under the sun. And as a result, this life feels like a task. It feels like a burden. Sometimes it feels heavy. Now, the other item about this is that you'll notice in the poem, in verses 1 through 8, there's something that's never mentioned in the first eight verses. You'll probably notice in your Bible, there's no mention of God whatsoever in that poem. And without God, the author is telling us those times and those seasons, they will feel meaningless. Your toil won't endure. All those events that we looked at earlier are events that happen to us. We are passive receivers of those seasons, those times. They come upon us. And they, they give us the, the harsh reality that we're not really in control of time. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want to be in control. I do want to be in control, and I try. So I put my seatbelt on. I put the money in the 401K. I try to eat the organic stuff. I, I try to be in control of as much as I possibly can. But life under the sun is constantly reminding me that I'm actually not the one in control of time. And that's movement one, which leads us to movement two. We need to look at time from another perspective. We need to look at time from above the sun. And thankfully, the text does give us some hope here. So look again with me at verse 11. First of all, notice that word beautiful. In the Hebrew, that word means that there's an appropriateness or there's a rightness, that he makes everything beautiful in its time. Sometimes it's translated as strong and healthy and handsome and fine and auspicious and well and right and well-ordered. It's, it's good. It's beautiful. And he makes everything, it says, beautiful in its time, that God is sovereign over all events that occur in time. Uh, the Westminster Confession says it this way, quote, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Now this is difficult to believe. This is where faith comes in. To believe that God will fit everything, even the ugliness of this post-Genesis 3 fallen world into his perfect, beautiful, sovereign plan. How is he gonna do that? And how do we explain the things that occur in our life because of this, this reality, how do we make sense of, of the, the evil that we see in this world and the fact that God is at work making something beautiful? This is called in philosophy the problem of evil. 
We have this Bible that says God is always good and God is always faithful, but there's things that happen in our life that just don't fit with those words. And sometimes when those bad things happen to us, we begin to put a question mark where God has put an exclamation point. Because we just don't understand, and so we look for solutions, and there's many people who have tried to find a solution to this problem. There's a famous one by Rabbi Kushner who wrote a well-known book about when bad things happen to good people. And, and he goes into that book to try to provide a theodicy, a, a reason for the existence of suffering and evil. And the conclusion that he draws is, is he says, well, the only possible conclusion here is that there must be some things that God cannot do. There must be some items in this world that God does not have power over. And so what Rabbi Kushner says is what mankind has to do to make peace with all of this is mankind has to forgive God. Now, that's not theologically accurate. Pastor Tommy Nelson says, if you want to read the shortest book ever, it's called The Apologies of God. God never asks humanity for forgiveness. Sometimes bad books are written by good people. <laughs> Instead, the biblical answer is, yes, there are things in life that we don't understand and know, but there are also some things in life that we do know, and one of those things is that God is in complete control of time. And so John Bonaventura shared with me this quote recently that I've never forgotten, and it's stuck in my mind like a piece of glass, and I want to share it with you because it just kind of haunts you, and I want you to have this, this quote in your mind when the bad things happen. Here's what the scripture teaches. Uh, George Lawson, a, a Scottish scholar, says it this way. He says, the Lord of, look at this quote, the Lord of hosts permits much evil in the world. We are amazed that the God who hates all sin should permit so much sin to find a place in a world which he governs with an absolute sway. Here we find that he not only permits sin, but he makes use of it. No sinner can do any evil that God has not intended to use for the advancement of his own glory. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, then this is where you plant your faith right here. I know this is hard to believe, but this is something we long to believe. And this is good news because I think the scripture teaches this exactly. Romans 8, 28, he works all things together according to, uh, for those who love God and are, are called according to his purpose, right? He makes everything beautiful in his time. God makes all things good. And so what that means is if there's something in your life that's not good right now, then God's not done. And so the scripture teaches us that we should embrace the beauty of God's comprehensive control over all things. This is what the Kohelet is teaching us. This is what Solomon is saying. This is what we long to believe, though we don't totally understand it. This is what verse 11 is saying. In verse 11, it says that God has also set eternity in our hearts, inside of the human heart. The word eternity is the Hebrew word olam. It, it's, it's both comprehensible and incomprehensible at the same time. We get it, but we don't get it, but we long to get it. Mankind, humankind, meaning this, humankind, we have a, an impulse leading us to the realm beyond the temporal. We, we can't quite 
penetrate the roof of this universe. It's like the Iron Dome up there. It's like the, the Truman Show. There's something up there. It's opaque. I can't quite bust through it, but I want to get through it. I have this longing. I have this sense that there's something beyond. It's like a, the smell of a flower that I've never seen before. It's like I have news from a country that I'm not really totally sure exists in this world. There's something in my heart. There's a longing. There's an eternity. I want to know more, and it, it, there's like breadcrumbs leading me somewhere. Now, you and I, we tend to think of eternity as a, as a line with two arrows, one on the, either side. And the, the arrow over here is talking about the past, and, and the past just continues on and on and on. And then the other side of the line points to the future, and the future just continues on and on and on and on and on. That's not the biblical correct way to think about eternity. Eternity is not you and me spending our life on this line. Eternity is escaping the line altogether. This is the God that we serve and worship. The God who's placed eternity in our hearts. This is the arena that God dwells and acts inside of human history. The God outside of time. This is why the scriptures say enigmatic things like the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. This is why Romans 8 says you've already been glorified. Past tense. Even though it hasn't happened yet. From God's point of view, it's a done deal. God exists outside of time. He was, he is, and he is to come. He's the alpha, he's the omega, he's the beginning, and he's the end. He's the God who created time itself. This is the God that we look to beyond the sun, the God that we need to get through these times under the sun. This is what we're made for. This is what our hearts long for. Not life in this world, not life under the sun. This is why C.S. Lewis said, if I find in my heart desires for which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. And this is where eternity is pointing us, the eternity that was sown inside of our hearts by a sovereign God, the God who stands above time. Now, because eternity is in my heart and it's in your heart too, when bad things happen, you and I want to know why. We want to know why. But here's the catch. God will not tell you. Nor is he obligated to tell me. Which is why he says he put eternity in our hearts, yet it also says, look at the screen, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has not committed to explain himself to me. Let me drop down to verse 14 where Solomon continues. He says this, I, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God does it. Why? So that people will fear him. Why does God set up the world like this with eternity in our hearts but yet we're missing all kinds of information. He does this so that we might fear God, so that we might reverence God, not so that we'll be terrified of God, so that we might live in awe of God, so that we might live with a holy reverence for the responsibilities that he has given to us, that we might fear God with our lives. Because Ecclesiastes will tell us we will all stand before him and give an accounting, which is a sobering thought. Even though there are things in this world and in this life that I don't understand, I'm still accountable to follow him in the things that I do understand. And in chapter 12, this is where the author will be taking us later. The great intellectual Daniel Webster was once asked, what's the greatest thought you've ever thought of? And he was a brilliant scholar. He said this, the greatest thought I've ever had in my mind, the greatest thing I've ever thought about is that I am personally accountable to God one day. 
Do you live your life like that? And truly in the fear of God, knowing that one day you're accountable before God? A.W. Tozer said, I'm convinced that I won't be in heaven for five minutes before I look around, see the riches of glory, and think, oh, I should have done so much more. And so we who are alive today are encouraged in the New Testament to set our minds on things above where Christ is and to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. As Pastor Bob reminded us, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. This world under the sun is passing away. Even secular scientists will acknowledge this. The sun will eventually burn out. Eventually it will be gone. As a result, in the end, nothing we do on this earth under the sun for this world will make any lasting difference if this is all there is. You know, as a pastor, I've been in a lot of different hospital rooms and people's bedrooms with one of those special hospice beds towards the end of their lives. And I've seen this reality maybe more than most people that I know. But I'm always reminded of this fact that our life and our finances and our time is so fragile and it is so brief. And it's all on loan to us. Because all of us at the end will likely die in a hospital or in our home, but we will all pass away in a borrowed bed wearing borrowed clothes, living out borrowed time. One day, we will all pass away in a borrowed bed, wearing borrowed clothes, living out borrowed time. And the question we have to ask ourselves as we prepare for that day, the Kohelet says, is today, even though there are things you don't understand, today, would you be willing to live your life in the fear and reverence of Almighty God? Francis Chan once said, my greatest fear is not failure. My greatest fear is succeeding at all the wrong things. And the big idea of this passage, if you forget everything else, just remember this. Here's the main point I think that the Kohelet is making for us today. When it comes to time, here's what we have to remember, these two dual realities. You need to trust in God with what you cannot control and honor God with what you can control. Can we say that together? Trust in God with what you cannot control and honor God with what you can control. Maybe you're here today, you've been making some plans in your life without God. What are your plans this month or this year or for the next 10 years? Does God have a say in the time of your future? Have you talked to God about your plans to go back to school or change jobs or retire? Have you thought that you can just do that any way you want to? Don't you think he's interested in those things in our lives? Of course he is. He wants us to consult him and to depend on him and to trust him because he's the God who's sovereign over time. And even though we don't understand all of that, Solomon tells us what we're to do with the time that we have now. Verses 12 and 13 provide us great clarity about our obligations. He says, I, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. We don't understand everything, but if we will look and pay attention, we will recognize that there is good in this world for us to enjoy and to be a part of. Simple things like enjoyable food, or enjoyable friends, a good book, your family, a good banana. 
I love bananas. <laughs> Solomon's point is because we don't understand everything about time, we must make the most of the time that we've been given, or to put it very simply, we need to enjoy life as a gift from above. Enjoy life as a gift. This is particularly difficult for you crazy people like me with your lists. We are so busy thinking about what we should do, could do, or going to do, that we're not really living in the present moment today, enjoying the good gift that God has given us right now today. And so go home and enjoy your family. Enjoy Reese's Peter Buttercup ice cream, if you are like me, in moderation. But don't get so focused on goals and the lists that you miss the present moment that God has given you as a gift today. I struggle with this, but I am learning. So last week, my wife and I celebrated our anniversary, and we took some time to enjoy each other. And later on today, the kids will come back from the youth retreat and we will enjoy their company as a gift from God. And I will maybe later enjoy Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream. Because Solomon says it is good. <laughs> Not because I'm a hedonist, it's because I'm a theist. I believe God has given us these good things. So here's the point, friends. Don't let what you can't understand dilute and destroy what you can understand. Enjoy the satisfaction of a good day's work. Work is a good gift from God. This is what the Puritans realized. It's called the Protestant work ethic. They worked hard for the glory of God to do good on this earth. Find something to do with your hands. Serve with first choice. Serve the Lord at the Contend Conference. Be about the business that God is, has given to you today. Running the universe is God's business. Stewarding what he has given me, the time that he has given me, is my business. And I will mind my own business. One more verse. You have time? Okay, I know I'm going over. Verse 15, but you've got to get verse 15. You won't understand the whole thing. So verse 15. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. Now, look at that verse. Notice, past, present, future. Do you see it? God has a plan. God has a script. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He knows what will be, meaning God already knows the future. For us, it's tomorrow. For him, it's yesterday. It's already been planned. And notice the end there, 15C. This is really important. Don't miss this. God will call the past to account. Or your translation might say, God seeks that which has already passed by. What does that mean? Walt Kaiser, a noted scholar in the Hebrew language, interprets it this way. Listen. God seeks time itself, which, from a human point of view, has been lost but which in God's arrangement of events, he seeks to bring about as part of his wise plan for the future. What that means is I can go through things in life that are very difficult, that are enigmatic, that are puzzles. But if I will wait, if you will wait, 
God will seek what has already passed by and bring the past back into account. And he will go out, seek that thing that has occurred in the past and make that thing fit perfectly into his beautiful plan for your life. We will not understand it at the time. And it might have been horrible for you at the time. And I don't mean to, to make light of that at all. I don't, it, I'm sure it was painful. It was difficult. But even if the enemy Satan himself would come to you and say, would you exchange that event for some trade that he's going to give you? Do not take him up on that deal. Because in time, if you will be patient, if you will wait, God will take that evil in your life and he will find a way to fit it perfectly into his beautiful plan for you. This is the truth that we need to hold on to. But the catch is this. We might have to wait a long time. And that's part of a theology of time. There's time for waiting. And sometimes we might have to wait till the other side of life. There are dark events. As a musician would say, there are sharps and flats on the keyboard. By themselves, are not very enjoyable to listen to. They create dissonance. But when played in the context of the entire musical piece, there is nuance and beauty and richness to the composition that God is working in your life. So verse 15c says, evil deeds need to ripen like a banana. And one day, God will balance the scales. One day, the sovereign God of the universe, the God of all time, if there's injustice, he will bring about justice. He's got his own yellow legal pad with his own to-do list, and it's much more comprehensive than yours. He will make it right, and he will make it beautiful in his time. Fyodor Dostoevsky said it well. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will one day vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible in that moment to forgive, but to also justify all that has happened. And you know how we know that the God who is outside of time will bring all things together for our good it's because the scripture says in the fullness of time, God sent his son. Through the line of Solomon, the Lord Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for you. And so while you may not understand everything in your life that happens, the one thing it can't be is that God doesn't love you. The one thing it can't be is that God doesn't care about you because God sent his, his son in the fullness of time for you. And this is the one who stands above time and time belongs to him. So as the worship team comes, let me close with one more quote from the Heidelberg Catechism. It begins with this one thought-provoking question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So you do not control time. I do not control time. But we belong to the one who does. And he makes everything beautiful in his time. Would you pray with me? God, knowing you, the God of the past, the present, and the future, knowing the future that we have with a new heavens and a new earth where you will make all things new brings us great comfort. Knowing that we have you in the present, that you are always with us and that you never leave us and never forsake us brings us great peace. 
And knowing that in the past, Father, that you sent your own son to die for our sins gives us great joy. God, thank you that you are the one who was, you are the one who is, and you are the one to come. And if we know you, the one who lives above the sun, from that perspective, you can give me meaning in the madness. And we can enjoy life today as a gift from you, and we can be good stewards. So God, we thank you that time is in your hands. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.